0: Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyas Jiwa. My guest today is Gerald Winokur, who graduated from the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and practiced internal and geriatric medicine for 36 years and taught at the Center for Medical Humanities and Ethics for 18 years at UT Health San Antonio. His book, Memory Lessons, A Doctor's Story, relates to the journey through Alzheimer's disease he took with his father He's also written a volume of poetry, Human Voices, Wake Us, in the Literature and Medicine series, published by Kent State University Press. Welcome to the show, Jerry. I'd like to start with talking about your journey through medicine. How did you end up doing medicine, and how did you end up working in the area in which you you are best known?
1: Well, uh, Moyes, I I started out as a general internist, and I was... Old school, at least in America, it's old school. That is, I graduated uh, medical school in 73 and finished my residency in 76. And then I, I opened up an office, a solo office in San Antonio, Texas, uh, where I did my residency and started out in the way people started in those days when you, when you didn't have connections, which was taking a lot of emergency room call and, getting to know other doctors in the community and getting referred patients. And over the years, I, I built a practice. And as they aged, as my patients aged and I was aging, it just became obvious to me that I needed to get some additional qualifications in geriatric medicine, which I did. And by the time I I retired, uh, 20, uh, 36 years later, most of my patients were in the geriatric age category. Mm. And along the way, I was doing a fair amount of nursing homework. I became a medical director of a skilled nursing unit here. And um, and then, as you mentioned earlier, um, as I aged, of course my parents were, were aging, being about 30 years ahead of me. And I'd say two-thirds of the way through my practice life and my life, my father developed Alzheimer's disease. -hmm. And uh, here I was, a geriatrician, a son whose father was dementing over a period of about six or seven years. And I was doing everything I could to treat him at home, take care of him at home. I had a physician, one of my younger associates with his doctor, but I did what any good geriatrician does, which is protect my patient, my father. By monitoring him closely, being very careful with medications, by keeping him out of the hospital, keeping him out of a long-term care facility as long as I had, to, as long as my mother was able with, uh, with some help to manage him at home. And I did manage to keep him home for all those years. Mm. But I learned a lot of lessons about what, what families go through, what individual patients go through with that with that disease. And that's what my book, Memory Lessons, is about. Mm. And, um, that was published in 2009, I believe. And it did strike a chord with a lot of people. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, I suppose uh, if I'm known for anything, it's, it's for that book. Yeah. I still get people calling me, writing me. Even now that I'm recently retired, I get emails every day. I get, I get phone calls from people. Uh, and I, you know, I do what I can as a, as a retired doc. I'm Mm -hmm. retired from practice. I'm still doing some teaching, but I'm a retired doc. I do what I can to try to help them through this maze of, of, of the aging process, especially in a country like the U S where technology is almost never my friend or my patient's friend. Mm -hmm. It's almost always makes things more complicated and more difficult. Of course, look, I know when I need it. I'm happy when I need it and when I can use it to my patient's benefit. But there's so much that's done that does not need to be done. I don't know if your system is as is tortuous and age unfriendly in Australia.
0: Yeah.
1: But in most places in America that is the case.
0: Mm. If I can pick up on that, you say that technology was not your friend. Can you think of examples of where it really interfered with the care of your father?
1: Well, I'll give you the, the main example when he was admitted uh, for congestive heart failure. Yeah, he'd had a couple of MIs earlier in his life, and my mother called me frantic one evening, and he was pacing the house in short of breath. And I went over there. I lived maybe. 20 minutes away. I went over there in the middle of the night and he was obviously in congestive heart failure, obvious to an internist anyway. Mm. And I called his doctor and I said, I'm bringing my dad into the emergency room. And he said, I'll be there. A very reassuring thing to hear from your doctor, something you don't hear that often anymore, because Mm -hmm. now most doctors hear they don't see their patients in the hospital. They use hospitalist physicians. But anyway, this was a while back and, you know, met him in the emergency room. He was admitted within a day. His symptoms of heart failure were much improved, but he developed delirium and he didn't know where he was. He was agitated. I, um, I stayed there he, he, my, between my brother and me, one of us was with him 24-7, and I was doing my best to reorient him and keep him calm and avoid putting him on uh, psychotropic medications, which are so often used in these settings, and they, those are not friendly geriatric medications that, excuse me, as I'm sure you know, Sure. and in a couple of days, he was ready for discharge from a heart failure angle, but he was deconditioned and he was still confused. Hmm. And uh, my associate, his doctor, said, I think your father could use some time in our skilled nursing unit. And uh, I knew all about the skilled nursing unit because I was a founding medical director of such unit. And I would have patients there of my own and other doctors all the time. But one thing I learned from that was that that was very unlikely to help his delirium state what he needed to help that state was to go back home with care be reoriented be among familiar people and familiar surroundings and i'm not saying that was easy it was difficult for a few days but i believe firmly that had i put my father in a skilled nursing unit in that state That he would have ended up in a long-term care facility. I would never have gotten him home. Yeah. And I promised myself and him and my mother that as long as I could possibly manage it, I would not put him back in the hospital Mm. or in a nursing home. And I would do everything I could do to keep him home and comfortable and, and help manage him conservatively.
0: Yeah.
1: Which is really the keystone of geriatric medicine. Yes. Uh, and I was fortunately able to do that. Mm. Obviously, I wish everybody could have a son or a daughter that was a geriatrician. We can't even produce enough geriatricians to take care of the, the population that we have. We're about 30,000 geriatricians short in America. Yeah. But obviously, I was in a position to help with that. But I, I learned a lot of lessons doing that. I really did. Mm. I If I ever had any doubt, that in geriatrics, less is more. That lesson was pounded home to me time and time again over the years as I took care of my dad there, and I will add my mother, who just passed away two years ago from the result of a stroke and a and a fall and a hip fracture. Sure. And I kept her home for three years with with help as well.
0: An amazing story, in, in, and you're right. The, the the bottom line is that you are. number one, a doctor, and number two, a specialist in this field, and therefore they were very lucky to have you guide them through the end of their lives. Uh, For many people, that is not the case. And what do you think you learned in the process of looking after them that you think could change the way this is done in America, apart from qualifying more geriatricians?
1: Well, I I certainly believe that If folks do their best to try to keep their loved ones at home. Mm. Now, I realize that is a tall order. You know, in this country, it's practically the rule that both the husband works and the wife works. And sometimes, increasingly, the patient's son and daughter are also raising children. I mean, it's a tremendous logistical problem. Yeah. And there is no coverage really for home care, although I will, I will say that people in this field in America are recognizing the health care of our elderly patients would be much better if we could take care of them at home, and it would be much cheaper to take care of them at home. So there is starting to be some coverage under certain state programs, primarily state programs that so-called Medicaid over here, for home care. They're even starting to pay family members some money to stay and take care of people at home. Mm. So I, I truly believe that a more robust system of home care, visiting nurses, visiting physicians. You know, the the old house call is practically extinct in America, mm. although in some quarters there are people trying to bring that back. And I have to say that if if I... Were to go back into practice at this stage of the game, or begin a practice as a younger man at this stage of the game, I would really work to be a home care physician. I th- and there there are such entities. There are even some companies that employ doctors to be home care physicians because I think in this situation, with dealing with the elderly, with frailty and dementia, and um, all the attendant syndromes that they have. They are best kept at home. The treatment is not difficult. It's simple by qualified professionals. And uh, I just think folks would be so much better off. And the amount of money we would spend in this country taking care of folks like that would diminish great, greatly. And there would, their pro- quality of life would be better, not worse than this shuffling back and forth to hospitals. Here in America, it's very common to discharge an elderly patient from the hospital and have them come back within the next two weeks. And it's only because they or the family didn't get appropriate instructions when they left. There was no one to do any kind of follow-up until their next doctor appointment, which might have been in a month or two months. And so they bring the person back to the hospital. Mm. And instead of saying the payors, which, which in America and our elderly population is a federal program called Medicare, Instead of the payer saying, well, this is a problem. We need to figure out how to fix this by giving people more support at home. What they've done is they said, well, I'll tell you what, hospital, if you discharge a patient and that patient comes back within a couple of weeks, we're going to penalize your payment. But you didn't do something right. It's obvious you must have not done something. You must have done something that wasn't appropriate or, or didn't do something that was appropriate. And so we're going to cut your reimbursement. And uh, all that does is um, make it even more likely that seniors or elders are going to be treated like second class patients. Mm. And more and more I'm seeing that kind of kind of reaction. Yeah. More and more doctors are charging a, a monthly or a yearly fee to see patients. That's called concierge medicine here.
0: Mm.
1: and some people can afford it, but many cannot. And so they look around to try to find a physician who is not a concierge doctor, but a tech, accepts the government fee schedule. And there's few enough of them already. Mm-hmm. But now there are even fewer because so many doctors are refusing to care for them unless they can pay extra, uh, extra money. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I think it's a very bad development Uh, I don't think you have that problem in Australia, from what I've been reading about. And thank God you don't.
0: No, we don't. You're right. I mean, the last place you want uh, an older person who's becoming confused to be is in a hospital. But you need them. It takes a while to recover, and the confusion takes a while to settle. So you can imagine somebody having an older person at home who's become confused, come out of hospital, is still confused and in very short order they end up back in the hospital and back in what effectively would end up in institutional care
1: exactly mm. and that happens mm. a lot mm. that happens more much more than the other way yeah when there is somebody that's following a patient over a, a lifespan or over many years as i did in my practice mm. a patient of mine who i took care of in the office or occasionally at home. If they got admitted to the hospital, I took care of him in the hospital. Mm. And they didn't leave the hospital until I felt it was safe for them to go home. Yeah, And I would yeah. write out detailed instructions and I would see them back within days, not, not, not a month mm. and make sure they were doing all right. Mm. And I, I felt my job was to be an advocate for my patient, mm. a t- advocate, wherever they were. And that. The job that I used to do for my patients has now been fractured into many other jobs. Mm. So you're in a, either an office doctor or you're a hospital doctor, or let's, let's take a step back, or the, doc, the guy that sees them in the emergency room, mm. then a hospital doctor. Then if they're really sick, an intensive care doctor, so-called intensivist. Mm. Then there are doctors who are called transitionalists. And their job, sometimes they're, they're well-trained nurses as well, but their job is to, quote, make the transition smooth to the next step, which might be a, a course of therapy in what's called a rehabilitation hospital. So there are rehab doctors. And then there are people that, if that, once that's tried and doesn't get the patient back home and the patient goes to long-term care, then there are people that work strictly in nursing homes. Well, I I did all of those things and I followed my patient all the way through and I knew what medicines I had them on when they went into the hospital. And since I'm the one that discharged them, I knew what medicines they were on when they were discharged. Mm. And I knew what medicines I wanted them on in the nursing home. That doesn't mean things didn't change, Mm. but I was the person making the changes. I was the person monitoring somebody that I knew and uh, that that is happening less and less in, uh, in America today, and it does not redound to the patient's benefit. Mm. It really causes lots of problems. Patients mm. ping pong back and forth from all these other places, downstream places, back to the hospital when things don't go right. And that's expensive. It's disorienting to the patient. Mm. It's too many cooks in the kitchen, and yet. This is what we are accepting as the state of the art in medical care today. Mm-hmm. And I just, having entered medical school in 1969 and watching this whole trajectory develop over time, I just think it has been a real detriment, well, to, to us all, but particularly the elder.
0: Yeah. Where, where do you think it went wrong? What do you think it was that's driving these perverse incentives to to do this kind of thing which is basically fracture healthcare and uh, the delivery of healthcare into so many pieces
1: i think in america there's much more emphasis on doing things to people rather than caring for people yeah and i i i saw that trend developing i've written about it uh, i've lectured about it and maybe there'll be a turnaround at some time, uh, at some point but Right now, it's we're not there. We're continuing on this trajectory. And a lot of, again, younger people, wonderful, chest pain, show up in the emergency room, you get a catheterization right away. If you need a stent, you get one, like our our presidential candidate, uh, Bernie Sanders, and he's back on the campaign trail in two weeks. You know, isn't that wonderful compared to what it used to be? Yeah. But, you know, for somebody that's 90 or 95 or 100, and I had a number of patients that were that way, I just wanted to keep them in their home for as long as I could. Yeah. I wanted them to be in familiar surroundings, being cared for by people that cared about them and uh, keep, keep the hounds of technology at bay.
0: Mm. Do you think it's driven on commercial grounds? Do you think this is all about money?
1: Well, I'm not going to be that jaded. I think a lot of it is about money. But I also think that that's how students are being trained today. Mm. You know, they, they learn the art of medicine and the technology of medicine by following people around that are practicing this way. Mm. And I know, in general, in medical schools, since most of them are nonprofit entities, not all but most, You know, they're trying to do the right thing for patients and they have these things available and the the students watch them use them. But here, they're trained in a hospital setting, in an intensive care setting. They're not trained in an office setting. They never, almost never go to nursing homes. Hmm. Uh, They're not trained in that end of the spectrum where a lot of these things that are being done are just not appropriate for the elderly. And they may never hear... Hear that that phrase uttered in their training. Their training is here's a man. He's coming into the emergency room. He's had a stroke. He's 85 years old. Here in this emergency room, if they come in early enough, they're candidates for you know uh, uh, clot busting drugs, and they get them without knowing the patient, without knowing the family, without knowing his pre morbid state particularly well, if at all. Yeah. And they see that, and they think, "Well, this this is I'm, I'm practicing state of the art, high tech medicine." Mm-hmm. And uh, they're not, since they haven't been following the patient, since they don't follow the patient after they leave the hospital. After oftentimes a very short stay, they don't get to see what happens down the road. Uh, they don't get to see the, the this ping ponging effect between these. These uh, downstream institutions and back to the hospital. They don't see it. And my fear is the way medicine is going now, they're not going to see it because they're going to train in the narrow silo of the academic high tech medical center. And they're not going to see what I did because they don't have mentors like me generally.
0: Mm. Jerry Winokur has been an absolute joy hearing you speak about this. When we think that. In, con- in a country like Australia, one in four Australians will be over the age of 65 by 2030. These lessons, these insights are of enormous importance as we consider the future of our healthcare system. Thank you. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at the thejournalofhealthdesign.com.